Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Lawyers, accountants, wealth advisors, and other professionals are used to dealing with difficult situations at the heart of their specialty, often with high stakes. But what happens when the problem isn't the money? It's destructive behavior that threatens the family and their wealth. For instance, what happens when you get the question, my son shows no drive and won't get up from bed? What do I do? My daughter's cutting herself. My husband hasn't been home in a week. My brother just got his second DUI this year and is running the business into the ground. The trustee of my trust has missed filing taxes, again, and is making mistakes. What do you do when you get these questions? What if you're the first point of contact in a crisis situation, but you're out of your expertise? And finally, what happens if it's not in your business model to deal with this part of the family's issues? I'm about to speak with Jane Mintz, and she's an ideal person to tell us how family crisis management works. She's a licensed professional counselor with multiple dimension training credentials in high-acuity clinical clients. She has extensive experience working in crisis situations with family businesses and private family wealth offices. I hope you come away being able to spot behavioral issues, bringing in expertise for longer-term solutions, and understanding the importance of teamwork in dealing with these types of families. Welcome aboard, Jane. Hi, Fraser. Nice to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you on because we're going to get into what I think is a pretty thorny topic, which is where the problems of our clients sort of outstretch our expertise and what time is the right time to bring in experts like yourself. Can you tell us in a couple of sentences what you do as a professional counselor? Sure. I am what I consider to be a clinical strategist. I'm a code cracker. So people come to me with pretty severe problems regarding individuals that they love or that they care about that have extraordinary problems with drug and alcohol, mental health, and lifestyle issues, which can get really, really complicated when you have high net worth, high asset individuals that are suffering. So that's what I do. That leads me to my next question, which is as applied to family businesses and wealth offices, trustees, people who are around families with significant resources, what makes them a little bit different maybe than sort of a typical mental health or drug addiction problem? Well, money is a double-edged sword. It can be used for the greater highest purposes of the family, or it can be used to really minimize and really destroy people's outcomes. So people that are moneyed people tend to get a lot of advice. And sometimes it's not great advice, but there's a lot of money that's being spent that may not be constructively used. But money always complicates things is really the central issue in your question. I've heard it that money oftentimes amplifies things that are occurring, may not cause it, may not fix it, but it certainly amplifies problems or amplifies even good attributes. Would that be the sort of an accurate descriptor? A hundred percent accurate descriptor. So as we think about this here as a, an advisor, as a lawyer, as an accountant, as a wealth manager, we all have our clients that can get cranky. We all have clients with kids that go through their, let's call them quote unquote phases. What do you differentiate or how do you differentiate between a mistake or growing pains and an actual crisis? It starts with patterns. Is there a pattern? Is the pattern getting worse? Is it getting progressively worse over time? 
And a lot of times we see individuals in their teens really start to develop some real problems. Well, as they age, it's only going to be amplified. So it's about maladaptive behavior. Is the behavior not within a normative range? And that's where we start. So if you're one of these advisors, whether financial, or whether maybe you're a coworker or a wealth manager or you're a trustee or something like that, how do you know when to intervene? How do you know when someone comes to you and says, I've got a problem and you know that you need to be part of the solution to it, but you don't have that expertise? Well, it usually happens in some business process or processes where you're going along, let's say it's a succession planning exercise or it's a state planning. If there's an individual that is consistently problematic, that's the time to step in. That's usually when it's the succession issues that come up. You want to be very careful about how money is distributed to people that are quite unbalanced in their lives. It only creates more. So I think that there's a human ethic and then there's a fiduciary ethic. And from a financial point of view, I think most people know where they fit, but it is in the exact question that you posed to me, when does an individual, professional individual, step out of that role and say something about behaviors that they observe or potential problems? And more and more and more, what I find in this field is that the fiduciaries and people like me are joining forces to be able to catch these families in that process and help increase wellness. So it's so important for people to think not only with their heads, but their hearts, because you see it directly. It's not something that can be brushed aside or misinterpreted. Everybody knows when they're around somebody that's wildly dysfunctional and they show up in every family in America this is not unique to the high net worth group, but those that work in that field, we have many more touch points with families like that and can use our best selves to ask harder questions. So if I'm an advisor on this front and I have a probably pretty good spider sense as to when things are veering out of control, but for maybe newer advisors, what are some of those telltale signs that you should look out for in your client base and sort of start to think about how these patterns emerge? You're going to start to see stress fractures in the family as a result of this individual. And this individual's name is going to come up over and over and over and over again. They are what we call the IPs, the identified patients, people of concern. But the behaviors are not taking adult responsibility, failure to be responsible with money, with relationships, contentious relationships, no-shows for meetings, a much degraded lifestyle, people not taking care of themselves, creating epic ruptures in the family. People like this, it will be no secret to anybody when they come up against the real deal. It almost doesn't take a really trained eye. As you said, your spidey senses will be up and your gut will be off. It just will. I mean, we are relational people. And I find more and more that fiduciaries taking a much more relational approach to relationships rather than transactional approaches. So the money managers or the money manager market people, that's a diverse market, are creating much stronger relationships with the family systems that they're working with. And families will be the first one to tell you, we've got a real problem here. 
We don't know how to navigate that. And that's the point where somebody can say, you know, I do know somebody that specializes in family issues related to wealth and strategic financial planning. And let's get a consultation with her. That's the easiest thing to do in the world is to just say, call me up and say, look, I've got a situation. What do you think? And I am happy any day to just spend 15 minutes to review the case. And if it makes sense, then we get the concerned people onto my consultation calendar. It's super easy. It's a very collegial process. Question that comes up, and I'm not sure where this begins and ends with your practice, but things like drug and alcohol problems, antisocial behavior, things that you'd often see during someone's prime of their life versus maybe, say, memory or capacity issues later in life. Do you get involved with those types of things, too? It just really depends. Now, elder care, memory issues, things of that nature is not really my lane. However, I have counseled families in how to address those things. And I do have many resources beyond just my practice. And likely I would bring in somebody that had more laser-focused expertise. Now, the untreated bipolars, people with, as you said, antisocial personality, narcissistic personality disorders, wildly prevalent in this population of people, and untreated mental health and addiction issues, or even misuse issues. We're using the word misuse over addiction a lot in the field now, because I think addiction pigeonholed people and created a barrier for them having a larger conversation. But it is really evident when people are not in a normative range. And if it's not apparent to you or to anyone that's doing a one-on-one, you will certainly hear feedback from the family. Or you can open up that channel of discussion and say to a concerned family member, I'm getting the impression that there might be an issue here. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And they will gush because it's too much. Let's circle back for a second to the fiduciary relationship versus the human ethic. One thing that I've seen people struggle with, whether lawyer, accountant, wealth manager, other advisor, or even friend, but more specifically in the professional context, is the idea of where your professional fiduciary relationship begins and ends, where your personal concern begins and ends, and ultimately, in a sort of crass way, where your business model begins and ends. Because for an advisor like me that tries to be able to run through walls for families, et cetera, there comes a time when I have to say, oh my gosh, this is officially a full-time job. How do you step in and help the advisor understand the byplay between those factors? It would start with a phone call. If you feel like you're getting in too deep and it becomes as you said, completely overwhelming. And a lot of what is happening isn't within your technical scope, then that's time to call me. And my advice would be that there really, if there is a crisis, there's no real distinction between professional and human ethic. There really isn't. And as long as we create those buckets, imagine how many people get lost in the middle. So if there's a problem, it's an all hands on deck scenario. And I do think it's important for people to, especially the fiduciary, to say, you know what, I'm feeling a little bit in over my head here. I'm certainly well-resourced to handle A through Q, but it's the Q through Z that we really are stuck here. 
And I have a colleague that I think might be incredibly helpful. Would you be open to talking with her? Not taking action, not signing an agreement, not doing anything, but would you be open to a different viewpoint here? And that's usually how cases are started, is with a conversation, a consultation. And when people really understand the power of what what Jane and Fraser can do together, it's really a huge relief to that family that they have a full circle team that can address these very sticky issues. So on a different type of fact pattern, we were talking a little bit about when the problem is residing within the family and there are family bonds and ties that are associated with that. Do you get involved in situations where maybe an independent trustee or an attorney or an advisor is has problems developing of their own and the family reaches out as sort of a third party to figure out how to deal with that? It's an interesting scenario, and I would hope that families would reach out to me, but that is not the norm. And I do think that as professionals, licensed professionals, we are very vulnerable because we really take on the enormity of family other family issues, and life builds up. It's really important for us to take care of one another as professionals. So if there is a colleague that's suffering, if there's a family member that's concerned about a fiduciary, most likely what's going to happen before they say, hey, we think you have a problem, is they're going to fire you. Right. I mean, they're not going to step out, but fiduciaries are not going to fire families. That makes a lot of sense. So the first notification that you're likely going to get from a family is you're done. Let's go through what happens when you get engaged by a family to deal with a situation. What is your process in dealing with the situation? What can a family expect a counselor to do? You place a call to my office. You get on my consultation calendar. I spend an hour with a family. I send out some paperwork that are checklists. They're very easy to fill out, which is what we call collateral information. I want to know as much from the family's perspective about what the problem is before I get on the call with them. Once I get on the call, I listen to the story. I do some reflective work with the family. I want to tap them for what their goals are, for what they think, what is the luggage in front of them to get this person help? What are the concerns? What are the fears? And by the end of the hour, I have a pretty good idea of how I would take the family from a point of crisis to wellness. So at that point, the family will likely agree to engage with me. And once that starts, we start with multiple weekly meetings, intensive weekly meetings, because I start typically at the point of extreme concern or crisis. Something bad is going to happen. That's usually my entry point. I love other entry points, but typically that's the entry point of emerging concern, if not crisis. And then we decide exactly what we'd like to do over several sessions. And there's all Zoom calls. So I I work with families literally all over the world in lots of different countries. And we decide exactly what the action plan is. And then we move to action. Typically, we can get somebody that is of concern into some kind of care or help within the first month. And after that, I offer families extension contracts for me to case manage and for me to continue to be a family systems counselor, helping the family reorganize their languaging, their boundaries, increasing education on how this all happened and what needs to change 
in order to support that person and themselves going forward. So my engagements typically last six months to a year. To follow on to that, uh, I've been a part of interventions, crisis situations, et cetera, people getting arrested and kind of parachuting in and helping with that. How do you think about the creation of the structure once the crisis has been addressed? As you sort of said, setting up the conditions for long-term success. I think of the, let's say, the alcoholic or drug abuser who goes to 30 or 60-day or six-month program to detox, but then they walk out of there. And if the structure hasn't been sort of figured out ahead of time, they could walk right back into the situation. How do you think about that? That's actually central to every decision that I make is the easiest point, believe it or not, is the moment of crisis. What are we going to do with that moment and how are we going to set the stage to address the exact question that you just posed is what happens next? Because everybody does well in treatment. Most people, there would have to be some sort of really prevalent mental health issues that would prevent people from having a good experience in a treatment environment. But that is the central question. And that is why case management and continued family support is essential. Because how are we going to set, we call it a continuum of care. So the beginning of the continuum is heading off a life-threatening crisis or a massive corporate blow-up, whatever the case is. So I have a concierge team of clinicians. If people didn't want to go into more structure, typically the discharge plan would be they'd come out of residential, they would return back home with full supports, which would include an intensive IOP or PHP program, a therapist, a psychiatrist, and maybe a coach to get back on track. And then I, as the clinician that's running the whole case, monitors that progress. I continue on with the family with coaching and and counseling sessions with them so that we're keeping the family healthy and we're keeping the individual engaged in their recovery from whatever that might be and moving forward with more goal-oriented and recovery-oriented efforts. Do you get involved with the other advisors to help them provide sort of the structure on the legal front so that you as a clinician can do your job better and prepare the family better for when these things eventually pop up? Because they will. The answer is absolutely all day long. I believe in a full team approach. If I'm the only one that has the information and is, that's not a healthy system. So working with boards, working with estate planning professionals, legal people, single and family, multi-office folks, it's essential because we all have to raise our game. If I have the opportunity to bring you into my thinking, it only betters other people. And I get to use you guys as resources too. A lot of times we have some real legal issues with people that have to do with conservatorship, arrests, just unbelievable child issues, just it goes on and on. So it is incumbent upon us as professionals to bind together as a unit. I mean, that is literally the most responsible thing we can do. To me, not having someone like you in my corner when dealing with larger families and advising multi-generationally would be total folly because 
it's just so vastly important to be able to deal with the issues of emotional stress, mental health, the drug addiction issues, people basically steering the plane into the side of the mountain. And money doesn't fix all of that. It's real expertise that does. That's a long preamble to the question, what are reasonable expectations for people to have, either the family or the wealth advisors, et cetera, when they engage you? I shudder to say, oh, Jane will drop in and quote unquote fix everything because life is far more complicated than that. But from an expectation perspective, how do you regulate that? Again, you're asking such amazing questions, expectations. The first thing that I do is after listening to the story and learning about the personalities that are involved in this is we have a very frank talk about what people's expectations are and are not. Because usually at the beginning of the case, the expectations are out of alignment with reality. And after learning more about people through neuropsych workups, through psych workups, through motivational interviews, whatever we do to get somebody's story. We absolutely focus so much on those expectations because that's where people face plant. And not only expectations of families or even the supporting cast of characters, but it is the individual. And typically we're dealing with once high performing individuals that have decompensated to the point where they're just not themselves. What are their expectations? They're suffering with a lot of grief and loss issues. I once was the chairman of board of this, and now I can't stop drinking, and I'm sitting in my worn-out chair at home watching CNN. I mean, completely rendered. So expectations are enormously important. That's why we build strategies and we measure things as we go. And I get feedback from treatment centers or treatment teams about the individual, and I discuss those with the family members so that they can see what true progress is, what are some prognostic indicators one way or another, and then to talk about the reality of those things as we move forward with the progress of the case or lack thereof. So expectations is essential to get people thinking more openly and more realistically about the depth of the problem. Well, and also it removes this concept of the quick fix, which if you get your psychology from TV and so on, that I think that's just unrealistic. So it's heartening to see that you put in place sort of metrics for progress so that people are realistic ahead of time. Yeah. And what I will tell you that one of the first things I talk about is the reality of turning me into a hero. Oh, Jane is the only person that can help us. That's a long way down. So I try to create a structure where we're working as a unit, that I am freely giving thoughts and information, and I am available to the family. I think, you know, we make a lot of assumptions, and families make a lot of assumptions. That is a critical error, a critical, critical error. Before making assumptions, let's replace that behavior with asking a lot more questions. So there are some things... I think your listeners might be really interested in this little book. Okay. It's a little book called The Four Agreements by Manuel Ruiz. It's a little book, tiny little book of Toltec wisdom that really talks about how to restructure some of these tendencies we have to assume, to take things personally, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a book that I usually have families read 
so that we begin to have a common language and we have something that we can compare and contrast against. So it's really dynamic, exciting work with bringing families into present moment and being able to help relieve some of the trauma and some of the expectations, the sadness, the fear around what's going to happen next because everything's changing for everybody. And this is just such rewarding work. It really is. And if we have the opportunity with a moderately healthy family to bring them into clarity, that's an unbelievable win. Well, and it can turn into an experience that's a teaching moment for future generations, too, and a great way to provide an example of how the family pulls together to help their own, which I think in sort of long-term, let's call it planning, but merely more long-term education for families, that can be the most telling success even beyond the creation of the wealth. I have a really interesting case that just came across my desk, and I'm really considering taking it. It's a family out West, big, big, big family system. G1s through G3s, the G1s would like to retain me to do an entire assessment of the family. And there are five nuclear families, big nuclear families within the entire system. And they are so forward thinking that they see problems in G2 with really maladaptive behavior, lots of breakdown in relationships. And then they see the G3s with a lack of purpose and meaning a lack of credibility, some lack of motivation, lots of entitlement, acting out, you know, basically a generation of rudderless people because they didn't earn the money. They're not necessarily in the family business, but they're recipients of large buckets of money. That is just like an open manhole for problems. Absolutely. So these are the big kinds of cases that I work on. And typically with family systems, there will be an initial identified person And that then helps me enter the family to see what else. It's not ever just one person. It's one, three, four people in a family system. And it's that kind of work just lights me up. Because I get to work with everybody. I get to work with you. I get to work with attorneys. I get to parents, kids, grandparents. It's phenomenal. Well, and you have a massive impact on a pretty significant structure and a structure of people. And you can have a very positive, I guess, impact or you can be a positive force in a situation that can devolve very quickly. Oh, and has and will and all of that. It's really it boils down to the sort of the simplest word picture of throw a pebble into a pond. You just don't know what good can come from a conversation or treatment or whatever remediation we're putting out there, healthy, wealthy families do good things. Unhealthy, wealthy families can really be, you know, just ugly. It can capsize. (laughs) Ugly, 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 ugly. And nobody has to live that unhappily. That's the thing. It's a fundamentally unhappy problem. Right. Well, if you have the resources, you have the ability to deal with these things. And that's where you come in. This has been a really engaging conversation for me and very helpful. How do we stay in touch and how do listeners find you? Well, they could go onto my website, janemince.com. They can email me at jane at janemince.com. Or they can call me at 216-407-1350. 
And my assistant will get involved right away. We'll get somebody on a calendar for a conversation. It's very simple. I will have all that information on the show notes. But again, Jane, I appreciate you being on. And just to underscore, part of advising wealthy families oftentimes gets away from the trusts and the money and stocks and bonds and things like that. To me, I feel like I'm doing my best work when someone calls me and says, you know, my daughter's cutting herself, my kid's got a drinking problem, my brother is running the business into the ground, what do I do? Exactly. And the ability to have that pistol that I need at my at my side when I need it is vital in order to help families get to the other side. So I'm thrilled that you're on and look forward to further conversations. Listen, let's just promise each other because there is no more powerful alignment than a fiduciary and someone with my skill set. We can literally move mountains together. And individually, we're just that. But if we create a collective of caring professionals that can cross-pollinate on a case, that is true service. And that's what I'm interested in. So Fraser, I just can't thank you enough for having me as a guest on your show. It's always a privilege to be able to talk about what I do. And I just look forward to the opportunities to help people that might come as a result of this conversation. Oh, Jane, appreciate it. And thanks for being on. You're so welcome. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.